Chemistry, Lecture 117, Lecture 117, Rabbi Gleiweiss. Um, we, so we, we, we finished talking about some of the gedolim of the period, right, what they call the Kum HaMedina, the beginning of the state. Uh, we talked about the great Panovich Rav, the, the Mikhtev Milayahu. Um, now we're going to move across the Atlantic and talk about what's going on in America. Because really the last thing we discussed was after the calamity of the destruction of not just European Jewry, but European Tyra, which was the center of the Torah world for arguably a millennium, how do you rebuild? How do you recover from that? And the whole world is rever reverberating. It's a state of shock. And there are not Torah institutions in Eretz Israel. We, we, one of the problems of learning history is we tend to, understandably, in a very human way, we project our reality on the past. So today, I think we're in a considerably more stable place when it comes to Torah, there are a lot of Tamil Chachamim, there are a lot of institutions, Baruch Hashem, doesn't mean they're not struggling, but it, it exists, so we, so we tend to presume that that's always been the case. But back in the in late 40s, 1950s, wow, is it really a struggle. You know, when, when, you, when you hear the story of the Barabajarab building Grodno and Ashtor, Ashtor, Ashtor was nothing. Right, you, see, you hear building, building the Panovich Shiva. You hear these stories. It was, it, it's extraordinary. And now, in the United States, the United States, we we we've done an assessment. We talked about what was going on at the turn of the century. How um, the orthodoxy was moribund. The assumption was there was no future. It's it's year holding by there. You know what I'm talking about? I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Go ahead, do what you're doing. The um, All for the Boss. Have you read possibly a book I, I strongly recommend? I think I read it okay, it's a wonderful book. Very fun and funny, and also just paints a whole picture and. Clearly there, Yaakov Yosef Herman was the overwhelming exception to the rule. Um, but, you know, the Torah didn't seem to have a future in Eretz Yisrael. Um, the, um, we remember the demographic shift from the 1920s. America became the largest uh, population center of Jews in the world, a title that it holds till today as it's slowly wavering and, and uh, the demographics, if demographic projections mean anything, it'll be within the next decade or so that that will shift to Eretz Israel. There'll be more Jews in Eretz Israel. Um, well, right, more Jews in Eretz Israel soon, and then if things continue apace, which is, anything could change, but any, if things do continue, the, the, at one point, the majority of Klal Yisrael will be in Eretz Yisrael too, if present patterns continue. On the timeline... I mean, 2020 is I, I, at that moment. 2020? Only five years away? 2020, the majority of Jews, that's what they said. Uh -huh. that has, that's like perfect type, hindsight, hindsight, hindsight. Uh, 2020. Yeah. Uh, that's when the majority of the Jews are supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael. I, I think I projected, I think I did, I did a calculation projected 2029. It's anybody's guess. Um, it's... Anyway, these are, this is a meaning, meaningless debate because how do you know how many Jews there are in the world? A lot of these are estimates. You know, who's a Jew? How do, who do you count exactly? There are a lot of people who count themselves as Jews who are going, probably the other way around as well, too. Um, 1920s in America, there are 4.5 million Jews. Um, the United States population, in the, uh, right, the Jewish population, has barely increased by a fifth since then. Uh, so that's, that's not impressive. Um, the, just as a reference point, the general United States population is more than doubled, right? So normal demographics, we should be increasing, but we're not. At the end of this class, I'm going to give out, maybe you've seen it already, it's on the outside of Rav um, uh, um, Salinger's door downstairs in, the Laufer, in his office in Laufer. He has that chart of, will your grandchildren be Jewish? You've seen that? Go look at it if you haven't, if you haven't seen it. You have like a right. 7% chance. 
we'll talk about it too, but it doesn't look good for American Jewry at large. Um, and that was true in the Orthodox world too, up to World War II. There didn't seem to be much future for Orthodoxy. People were assimilating in, uh, you know, in, in, in large proportions. Um, there was low birth rate. There was limited immigration. Uh, the demographic forecast, therefore, has long been bleak. And some refused to give up. And we've already seen like the few individuals who are trying to do that. But the way you don't give up, the way you build for the future is chinuch. You give, your, you give your money to Torah. Um, I, I lamented yesterday when we, when we went by Yad Vashem and then we saw the Martef Museum the, um, and, on Hartzion, that which is the oldest Holocaust Museum, the first Holocaust Museum in the world, 1948 founded, uh, that the money these days goes to, so much money goes to Holocaust museums and edu edu uh, education. I was about to say entertainment, but Holocaust has become a big ent entertainment industry. I really do mean that. I'm not just being cynical. Uh, it is very entertaining. You can get a lot of... Um, Lot of, lot, of, lot of bang for, for all that gloom and doom and horror. Um, and um, I think Hollywood is capitalized. No, I mean, I don't follow what's going on nowadays. Oh, a lot of Holocaust yes. movies, right? Very, very cinematic. In any case, um, they, lots of money available for that. Not much for um, Yeshiva payrolls. Uh, Derek is not alone in that struggle. It's not easy to say, but these yeshivas are building on the future. I'm going to mention some of the, some of the yeshivas uh, that would be built in uh, America, um, and I won't hold back, and you'll ask questions if we have. So, um, yeshivas, what's called Rebbeinu Yitzchak HaChonan, was the name of the institution. It was founded in 1896, so it's really one of the original. There were others, too, that I'm not going to mention that came and went, because we know how hard it is to have yeshiva, and many of them disappear. This one would reconfigure and combine and be renamed several things. That's why I mentioned it. What started as Rabbeinu, Rabbe Yitzchak Rabbeinu Yitzchak in 1896 changed its name by 1928. It had become Yeshiva College. Eventually, it will turn into Yeshiva University. Okay, and we'll go through various shifts, transitions. The um, it is seen as the flagship Yeshiva of the American modern Orthodox world. It would formally separate, split up inside, meaning the sub-yeshiva within yeshiva college, what's called yeshivas Yitzchak, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Achanans, or condensed and abbreviated to Reitz Theological Seminary, added at the end too. Um, that would formally split from the big yeshiva university when the yeshiva university decided to uh, accept government funding in 1945. That was a radical shift. Many Rabbanim criti criticized the, uh, the, the, their decision to accept the money as a compromise of Torah values because when you accept government money, you have to give in to, to, to government demands. Um, you remember Volozhin in 1892 had closed its doors for less. Um, Rav Gifter, for example, is, doesn't hold back, or Mordechai Gifter uh, was scathing in his assessment of YU and felt uh, paraphrasing that YU sold its soul in 1948 when it, when it, when it uh, agreed to accept the, the, the money. Uh, Rav Gifter was not alone. I mean, Rav Soloveitchik, who's considered the icon, the, uh, the figurehead of YU, was not, uh, well, we'll hear about him, he was not enthusiastic about this move. And the part of the split was, was um, based on that. Yes. You want to say something? I look like a hand. No. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'll say. Rav Soloveitchik said that the motto at YU eventually became Torah Umada, 
which in theory embodies the ideal of modern orthodoxy that you could have the best of both worlds, that you could have a totally um, uncompromisingly strong Torah outlook and um, philosophy, and at the same time try to glean the best the kosher aspects of secular society, of secular education, that's Torah umada, mada in this case standing for secular studies. Um, but but Rav Soloveitchik said, he says, accepting government money is the antithesis of what Torah mada stands for, by theory. It utterly sells itself as a concept. The mada has to be taught with Torah as a premise so that when we teach the sciences, we're really teaching mysebrations. We're, teach, we're teaching the wonders of the, of the natural world, not science as a secular subject. Um, and of course, meeting government demands would make all of this impossible. Uh, we'll learn more about why you, uh, it'll come up again. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a separate, in a separate uh, section. But um, that, that's uh, why you, you remember I mentioned it earlier as well, when for just a year, Rav Shimon Shkop accepted a, a position there. Um, he was criticized for, for that. It, it was and remains a controversial place um, in trying to uh, kind of navigate between the two worlds um, sometimes, sometimes it's seen as, as compromising on Torah values. Um, I mean, I should speak positively as well. If you go, I know I haven't been there in many years, but I used to, I was there. I was a student there for a couple of years. I was in Reitz, uh, and and in returning to recruit students for different yeshivas where I taught, uh, I remember being increasingly impressed with the Brin and the base medrash. You couldn't get a seat. There was a dynamism. People were learning stark. Uh, there are world-class Talmud Chachamim who are rebbe's who are teachers there. Not all of whom agree and see eye to eye. There's a lot of diversity of opinion. Very, uh, very stark element at YU together with the um, with the reality. And students go back and they talk about this. That there are girls who hang out in the dorms there too, and all kinds of, all kinds of problems with Chil Shabbos and Pritzus and and all rolled up into one institution. Um, and there there are ongoing issues. I mean, I'm. I'm getting started already, but you know, one emblematic uh, issue that happened long before I was there, um, the, there was a shul named after the Rav's father, Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, brother of the Brisker Rav, they named the shul after, after Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, but it was no longer functioning, and I don't remember when this transpired, I think it was sometime in the 70s, maybe the 80s, uh, probably the 70s, when the shul was no longer functioning, and YU, limited in its resources and very anywhere in Manhattan, even, even as far uptown as, as, uh, as Washington Heights, where YU is located, it was um, hard to have facilities, and the theater department needed a place to have a theater. And so there was a whole discussion about turning the shul into a theater, and the Rabbani, mostly at Reeds, mostly the Rashi Yeshiva there, uh, were, of course, halakhically grounded and, and said, no, it's usr, a shul, has so many laws around the shul. If you have a shul that's built out tonight, maybe there's what to talk about, but apparently the shul was not built out tonight. It was not built conditionally, it was a full-fledged shul. Mali B'Kadosh, B'Kadusha, you have to go up in Kedusha, not down. And um, the end of the story was the board of directors won. And the theater, I don't know what the, what the status is nowadays, I think, to the last I checked, it's still a theater. So go figure, that's, that's, that's the dyna dynamic, and um, it's, it's a place where the board of directors ultimately holds sway. It's their, their say, um, even if you have world-class Talmud um, they're, they're, they're often silenced when, when, when push comes to shove. Um, the, uh, another very different institution we founded in Brooklyn in 1917 by the name of Torah Vedas. Torah Vedas, um, was one of the early leaders was Mr. Shraga Feivel Mendelovich, that's how he wanted to be known. 
he was Harav Hagaon, but if you called him that to his face, he cringed. Uh, he was Mr. as far as he liked to be introduced. He was originally of Hungary. He was part of Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch's school of Torah and Derech Eretz. Um, he, uh, he was the head of Torah Bedas uh, at its, really in its critical early years from 1922 to 1948. Um, it's one of the few yeshivish, yeshivas, when I say the word yeshivish, Maybe you'd have to use other words for it. Maybe you'd call it Haredi or ultra-Orthodox or black. Uh, but it's one of the few Haredi yeshivas that allows students to enroll in college while attending. So in theory, Torah Vadas also is Torah Mada, but they more clearly, more decisively put the Torah before the Mada. And um, then why you? And I mean, maybe people would debate me on that or be offended by that. I think it's a fair statement. They simply do. They prioritize Torah more so. Um, but still, they, you know, this idea of enc encouraging, allowing students to go to college, that was part of the plan because the assumption was in America, you're not going to get students if they're not going to be able to become professionally viable. They're not going to be able to stand on their feet professionally. In America, it's all about how to make money. That's the whole, the whole momentum of life works that way. I mean, you've been back. I mean, okay, Canada, so what? Same, same, same ethos. No, it's not a difference in North America, Western world for that matter, but um, there isn't a massive, there isn't a massive difference. And, um, and, and you, just, it's, it's, you walk in the streets and you feel, how come I'm not doing more towards my educational advancement and how come I don't have a bigger parnasa? No, it's just you just can't breathe and live. How do I afford all these mechanical devices? You'd see you were just there. No, I, it's, just, that's, it's there. So, so real, you know, dealing with the reality, okay, so here's Tyra, Torah first and, for, first and foremost, but okay, go to college and get a degree. That was, that's, that's, that was the Torah, the Das approach. Um, it's Rosh Yeshiva would include some of the great names of, of, of uh, American um, uh, uh, Rabboni Malchura. Some of them, Avram Yaakov Palm, Rav David Leibovitz was there for a period, uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, who we're going to meet, uh, he, he deserves his own focused discussion, Rav Zelik Epstein, uh, Rav Gidali Shor, Rav Ruven Grozovsky, I quoted Rav Ruven Grozovsky, um, when, I, when we talked about his, he, he expressed the pragmatic view on the, on the state of Israel as being one where if the Haredim wouldn't participate and wouldn't vote, then they wouldn't, by, their own, by, by the rules of democracy, get uh, perks for the Torah world, which, which that's how he articulated. Uh, Rabbi Yisrael Belsky, he should, he, should, uh, he, should, he should be healthy. Um, and um, with some very distinguished alumni, uh, the Boston Rebbe, one of the Boston Rebbe's, Rav Levi Yitzchak Karovitz was there. Uh, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, who's considered the Gadol in America today, if, 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 if uh, you know, there are many Gadolim, but I think Rav Shmuel's name is one of those that you hear more. Um, Rav Nussin Sherman of Art Scroll uh, came from Dora Vidas, so it's pretty long, uh, illustrious list of alumni, Revelia Sve, uh, certainly um, big names in Tyre. Uh, Hebrew Theological College in Skokie, we have some alum here ourselves, uh, was founded in 1922. It was also self-consciously modern Orthodox. It was a rabbinic school. Uh, that's less so today, but I think there is something there going on. It's a yeshiva, it's a college, it's a high school. You just got bought out. Oh, got bought out. By Toro. Oh, okay. By Toro College? Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, this, uh, here at here, HTC, there's a greater effort made 
to my knowledge, to have Torah personalities teaching the secular subjects. Meaning if all of these institutions somehow integrate secular studies, well, how do you go about doing that? And that's, that's something that they, you know, that there was, at, from the get-go, there was an attempt to try to do that. Um, it, it, over the years, let's say the educational department was not necessarily seen as, as, as prestigious as perhaps as to be found at YU. Um, <coughs> I think perhaps there's more, uh, more of a mix. One, one tends to find more yeshivish teachers at HTC where maybe the students themselves come from more modern orthodox backgrounds. Um, they also have some interesting and, and, and illustrious alumni, uh, including Rev. Avram Tversky, uh, the psychologist and an author who's written extensively and has a lot of interesting stories to tell. Rav Beryl Wine went sh was, was at HTC. Uh, Rav Nussin Svi Finkel, who grew up more in the modern Orthodox world before um, coming to Eretz Yisrael and learning and becoming one of the Gedolim and, and the uh, late Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva um, in the late 20th century into the 21st. Um, Nair Yisrael in Baltimore was actually named for, anybody know? Nair Yisrael? Named for Yisrael Salanter, founder of the Musser movement. Um, you remember the Musser movement will ge would generate some of the great names in Chinuch in the 20th century. Um, it was founded later, founded in 1933 by Rav Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman, who was himself a student of the altar of Slobodka. You remember Slobodka, they, they built up the individual, and we had a long list of famous names to come out of Slobodka and go on and lead, lead institutions, so Rav Ruderman being one of them. Uh, it would also open up a branch in 1959 in Toronto, near Israel in Toronto. Uh, it presently has kolels across North America. There's a push towards uh, trying to trying to, to spread Torah as best they can. Um, I'll speak a little you know, editorially and, and, and personally on the subject. Um, no place is perfect. There are problems everywhere you go. I, as a Rebbe now, I've been teaching in these kinds of institutions since 1994, 21 years and um, had a lot of alumni, and have had mixed results in every place, there's no place that's perfect, but generally, if my anecdotal experience means anything, the students who've gone on to near Israel tend to do very well as Jews. That's just my experience. It's, it's a stark place. The, the way they configure this tricky balancing act of Torah Mada, of trying to give, give the boys a job, a future Parnassah, but at the same time making sure that they stay strong and uncompromising in Kaira, is the, um, the, re the requirement, for example, that the boys have to, in the beginning of the yeshiva, are first full-time in yeshiva for six months. That makes a big statement. That establishes you, because what that does for you is that this is where I am, and this is my identity. I, I, I sometimes go out. I sometimes go to do the, the, the secular study thing. Good. But then I run back to my base. My identity is formed in the base medrash. That has a huge, powerful psychological impact, and, and, and a very positive one. Um, so that's, that's my own personal editorial comment on Nair Yisrael. Um, the Rosh Yeshiva was legendary, uh, great person, great in, in Midos, not surprisingly coming from Slobodka. Uh, in one story, um, he was, once there was a gathering of the wives of his students, of his Kolel students, they all wanted to meet with him. And he didn't know what, what he had done wrong, and they, they asked to meet with him. They wanted to give him a special thank you, a special Akara Satov. He said, because, um, and he said, what did I do? I didn't do, I don't even know you women. They said, no, no, you're very good to your wife, and our, and our husbands all notice it. And it's so pronounced that we notice it too. Meaning your goodness to your wife is legendary to the point that it affects our shalom bias. 
Um, it's, it's such a great story because it affects, it, it makes you realize that sometimes you don't even have to be knowing what you're doing. If you're doing the right thing, it'll have reverberations. Sometimes in Kiruv, you can tell that with the best of intentions, the Makarov, the person who's trying to do the Kiruv, is a little too aggressive. That's right. or, or sometimes teachers, with all the best of intentions, sometimes we want to see our results. We want to like impact you. Are you impacted? Am I being a good role model yet? But sometimes the best thing you do is just be. Just be a mensch, work on yourself, treat your wife nicely, and then just naturally people, that will have an impact on people. That's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, there are great personalities come out from near Israel. I'll, I'll, I'll mention a few names of Shimon Schwab, Rav Moshe Heinemann, who's a great post in Baltimore till today, Rav Aaron Feldman, uh, later of Yeshiva in Yerushalayim called Or Sameach, and then eventually returning to his alma mater, to his native uh, Yeshiva, and now the Rosh Yeshiva at near Israel. Um, no, excuse me. I'm sorry. I don't know if he was originally a student there. I take that back. I know he's presently the Rosh Yeshiva. That much I can say. Um, tells Yeshiva. Now, tells, now suddenly, wait a minute. What tells? That's the old country. We know tells. We go way back. We were in college together. No, no. Uh, but what tells, tells is now coming from, well, yeah, tells. This is the, this is the story of modern day tells. Um, see, um, it's a tragic story, too. The early years of the Shoah, two of the Rabbanim from tells, Rav El Yamir Bloch and Rav Chaim Mordechai Katz, were fundraising for the yeshiva in America and got stuck. As often happened, that's, we heard the parallel story with the Panovich Rabbi, who was in Eretz Yisrael. That's how he wound up in Eretz Yisrael. And he couldn't, back, and, and he couldn't go back, and he lost his wife and, and most of his kids and his whole yeshiva, the Panovich Rabbi. And a similar story happened to these two great Rabbanim uh, from Tel's yeshiva, Rav Bloch and Rav Katz. And um, so they simply did what a good Jew does, rather than despairing. I mean, we know a lot of people despaired and, and, and did not, were not able to rise up and, and, and come back to life. But um, they did, and they built, and they built a new yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio. And Tell's yeshiva was founded in Cleveland, Ohio. De facto, they just said, okay, well, we're just going to make Tell's here. Um, in 1940, uh, another Rav and a group of students managed to escape Lithuania. The Rav was named Chaim Stein. He just passed away uh, within the last couple of years. Um, he came over, very unusual figure, worth reading about, Chaim Stein. Doesn't fit any... Uh, can't fit him into any box exactly. Great, great Talmud Chacham. Um, most of the remaining Rebbe's, most of their families, most of the students of Tells in Tells in Europe uh, perished, were murdered by the by the Nazis. Um, initially, I mean, they were fundraising for the impoverished yeshiva back in Tells. They themselves didn't have money to open up a yeshiva in Cleveland in 1941. Good luck. Uh, they opened up in a private home. Because where there's a will, they're going to make it happen. They opened up in a private home. Eventually, they branched out. They, they, they built the yeshiva. Uh, they developed private branches in Chicago and later on in theory in Telstone. Didn't quite take off in Telstone. There's a big building up the hill that used to be Neve. Now it's uh, used by other uh, institutions. And uh, it's in one day, maybe it'll be the Tel's yeshiva. It was, best, it was supposed to have been the largest yeshiva in Eretz Israel. The shell of the building is there. It's not quite what it was planned to be. Uh, the Rosh Yeshiva would be, um, would be, it would include Rav Baruch Sorotskin, Rav Mordechai Gifter, whose name I mentioned earlier, uh, a, a famous alum who's in Eretz Yisrael teaching Torah widely is Rav Zev Lef. It's a great name in Torah. You should go, if you ever hear, if you hear that Rav Lef is giving a shir, run to it. Uh, you will, you will, you will uh, learn, learn immense amounts. Um, and then in 1943, guess who arrived in America? 
We, we stood by his kever uh, a few weeks ago. His name was of Aaron Cutler. And um, his pedigree, pretty strong pedigree, guess where he studied? He studied under the altar of Slobodka too. Uh, another, another great great name to come to Slobodka. He studied under Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein. He joined his father-in-law. He had a very famous father-in-law who we've met as well, Rav Isra Zalman Meltzer, um, in Slutsk. The yeshiva was in Slutsk. Uh, when the communists came to power, they moved, the, the yeshiva in Slutsk moved to Kletsk, which has immense alliterative potential. The Slutsk-Kletsk yeshiva. <coughs> yeshiva. Um, and when World War II broke out, the Vad Hatzola, right, there was an, a special organization that tried to save Jews, helped Rav Aaron Cutler escape Listen to how he skipped. He skipped through Siberia and eventually to America. He made it eventually. He actually I said 1943. He made it to America in 1941. Like the previous tragedies we've learned about, most of his students were murdered by the Nazis. When he came to, to the U.S., he took the same spirit of these great Telzer Rebbe's and he said, okay, I'm going to rebuild here. I'm going to build the Slutz Kletz Keshiva in America. And he said, Torah, Mada, college? No. Not going to compromise, not going to go the American way. Uh, they said, I'm sorry, sir, you're wasting your time. You cannot rebuild what was destroyed in Europe. It will never take root in America. American boys are only interested in receiving a college degree, they told Rivaran Cutler. And his life's mission was disproving that, and he won the argument. Um, he said, we're going to confer degrees in the yeshiva. Uh, we're going to give them degrees in Torah, an advanced Torah teaching, but we're going to teach Torah Lishma. They're going to learn because that's the way you're supposed to learn. The different definitions of what Torah Lishma is based on the Gemara and Sanhedrin, um, but it's an antithetical concept for Americans. I remember when I first came over, my first year of Torah study in, 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 in Eretz Israel, uh, full time, and it was Torah Lishma. I remember the difficulty I had of trying to explain what Torah Lishma was to Americans who said, yes, that's very nice, but what do you get at the end of the year? I'm sorry, do you get a diploma for that? Is that a degree? Could you transfer that? Could you use that towards college credits? Right? I mean, even these yeshivas have to bend over backwards, or Rickman's. I mean, it's all the same Shemai, we're just trying to make the yeshiva work, but it's nonsense that you have to somehow quantify the Torah experience, which itself is so beyond quantification. Um, so he wouldn't compromise. He said, he said, we're going to rebuild. He, uh, he said, we're going to use the, we're going to teach with the proper lumdus of the best European yeshivas. It, when I keep saying this, it's, I'm going to use this expression about a few other personalities. When I say he didn't compromise, the reason why you should hear that and think that's remarkable is because most people did. Most people were giving up, compromising, do, you know, doing, going the way of the land. Come on, you can't do that in the real world. People in the real world don't live like that. And these great rabbanim, Rav Aaron Cutler, certainly at the head of the list, uh, said, no, you don't have to give in. You don't have to compromise. He was um, not only a builder of Tyra in America, was not always appreciated. Rav Aaron Cutler had a huge hand in helping the, the revival of Tyra in Eretz Yisrael. We talked about yesterday the rebuilding virtually from scratch of Torah, the Torah system, the Panovitcher of the Chazonish. So the Ravon Kato had a big hand in what was called the Chinuch Atzma'i, the independent Chinuch system that we did mention yesterday as well, as the Torah world had to learn to separate itself from the state 
from the clutches of the state that sought to um, influence and secularize all young people in Israel. And the Chinuch Hatzmei was, was there to say, we're going to give a secular free, uh, secular studies free Torah institution, uh, Torah, Torah education for our next generation. And there too, with tremendous struggle, they, they, they uh, managed, managed to persevere and, and ultimately uh, were successful and built the system that we'll talk about today, that exists today. He chaired what was called the Moetzis Gedoli HaTayra of the Gudas Yisrael. He was, a, he was a major activist on behalf of Taira. He was also personally um, known for being a man of truth and Ish Emes. To the point, I told this story when we stood by his kever. Uh, this one stands out in my mind. They wanted to promote the yeshiva. Got to raise money for the yeshiva, which is not an easy thing to do. So you print a brochure. So they printed a brochure, but the original Lakewood yeshiva, as it was, uh, was Lakewood, New Jersey, was not so much um, in terms of physical, uh, we think we uh, have it modestly here and there. There was not much to write home for in the physical grandeur of the yeshiva. There wasn't so much as a tree. So. When they put together the brochure, they, I guess we'd call it photoshopping, whatever the equivalent of Photoshop back in the 1950s, 60s was, they, um, they, they grafted on a tree on the brochure. And when he saw it, he, make them, he made them take it out. He said, there's no tree there. Remove it. No Gnebus Das here. Um, today, his yeshiva has about 6,000 students. It's the largest in the world. So you go tell people that it can't be done and you go disprove them that it can be done. Uh, it's the largest yeshiva since the death of Rav Haigon Pumbadis in, in 1038. That's something you'd like on your resume. I built the largest yeshiva since 1038 in the world. <clears throat> um, many of its graduates, there are Lakewood Kolels all around the world in Eretz Israel too and certainly across in key positions across America. His son, Rav Schnur Cutler, his grandsons, his great-grandsons, all played leading roles in the yeshiva after he passed away. Um, in 1962, he passed away, uh, but his, his impact is immense. Um, some credit him with saving American Jewry. Sometimes when you hear these grand pronouncements, he single-handedly saved American Jewry, you have to somehow take pause. It's not quite accurate. There are a lot of things. Akadosh Baruch saved American Jewry, but certainly Rav Alan Cutler gets, gets, gets immense credit. The last yeshiva I'm going to talk about uh, before I start talking about some Gidolim in America, the last yeshiva in America I'm going to single out. There are many yeshivas in America. Uh, I'm not going to mention Lander, even though Lander is very familiar to a lot of you and it's a place you might wind up attending, but um, Lander College is, is a much later breakaway. Many of the rebellion came from YU, but were dissatisfied with what was going on in YU, thought they could do it better, and so they founded, they merged Turo College, Lander, Lander College, and that, that's another variation on the previous themes. Um, the yeshiva I want to talk about was... Um, is, 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 uh, the Masifsa Chaim Berlin, also located in Brooklyn. Um, okay, it's known among other things, people think of, 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 the, of Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn and they think of the great Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Yitzchak Putner, uh, who wrote the, uh, wrote the great Musser book, not just Musser book, it's really a book on Machshava, it's a deep book called the Pachad Yitzchak. Um, we've already seen one Pachad Yitzchak, don't confuse the two. There was an earlier, a couple centuries earlier, there was a man from Italy, a rub from Italy, who wrote a great encyclopedia called the Pachad Yitzchak. Two great works, same name, different work. Um, Pachad Yitzchak combines Musr, Halacha, Talmud, it's a bunch of essays on Ashkafa. It's kind of like, you know what it reminds me of? The best precedent is the same genre of literature as the Maharal as perhaps you'd also associate Rav Tzadok Cohen, who's a great influence on the Rav Whitner. 
Um, he himself came from Lidfish roots, roots as well as he was a Ger Hasidish roots. So he, 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 he merged different, different influences. Um, it's not well known and sometimes it's erased from his, his mantle. He was also influenced by Rev Cook. Uh, I know his, his, one of his students just passed away, uh, Rev Aaron Lichtenstein, two days ago passed away, was a student of Rev Huttner. Um, yeah. I'll give you one little piece that comes up all the time that I take from the Pachad Yitzchak. He, I, I mentioned this before, he has a great Muslim idea. He, he says, you know, in the end of day, we're, in the end of days, we're all going to go to the Yom Hadin, we're all going to be judged. One of the approaches, one of the ways to think about the, the day of judgment is not necessarily that they're going to take, that a country's is going to take a total picture of your whole life, even though we know every minute counts, every mitzvah, every avera will be counted. But in one way to gauge who was exactly, uh, you know, Matan Boker, was a Kaddish Baruch who's going to randomly, nothing's random, but he's going to ra- imagine that he's going to randomly slice two minutes out of your life and hold it up and say, here's the man. Don't you hope that it won't be that two minutes? Like, can you imagine if they hold up two minutes when you were sitting in sheer on your iPhone? Like, how embarrassing would that be, right? Um, okay. <clears throat> Not even a flinch. Nothing. <laughs> can you imagine if the two minutes is that when you're sitting on your iPhone? Just saying. Okay. <clears throat> um... He teaches elsewhere that the greatest challenging, challenge during the period that Chazal called Ikfas of the Mashiach, the footsteps of the Messianic era, which arguably may be the times we're living in, um, is the misconception. This is a very deep idea. Listen to this. Listen, listen carefully. It's the, deep, it's the idea that people have the misconception that we no longer really have free choice. Why do people think we no longer have free choice? Because we're compelled in our actions. That society or our, our own, whatever it is, our, our own socioeconomic position, the people we were raised by or the circumstances we find ourselves in, that more or less sets us in our mode of being and that we're not really in a mode where we can choose. He said this is, this is the great misconception that characterizes Iqfas of the Mashiach, that people are not free-willed. And he says it's wrong. We're all free-willed. Do you realize that everybody here could be Mashiach? Everybody here could be the Gadol Ador? It's a question of, of realizing your potential. Most of us don't realize that. Most of us cop out and take cowardly roots in life and become extremely mediocre. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I raised my hand, but... Um, oh, I thought you did. You, you, that's about the third time today. It looks but, like you are. But, but we all can't be the Mashiach. Oh, I, I mean, even one of us can't be the Mashiach. I mean, maybe, but we'd have to trace our seven It's true, but you, do, you know where you, do you know where your ancestors come from? I don't. You never know. But you could play a significant role. How's that? Okay, um, in his own lifetime, uh, interesting story, he was somebody who was also in favor of Limudei Chol, a person needs to have a trade, he said you could have a trade, uh, indeed many students from Masif Sachai in Berlin would go on even getting their PhDs, they got doctorates, including his only child, his, his daughter, Dr. Beruria David, who had found the BJJ in Yerushalayim, a very stark seminary for, for women, but she had her PhD. Um, it's a very well-known story. Um, Rav Huttner, he lived from 1906 to 1980. Uh, when he was older, in 1970, he was on an airplane that was hijacked by PFLP terrorists, Palestinian terrorists, and he was kept as a hostage in Amman, Jordan. Did you ever hear this story before? Uh, with the other male passengers. They released the females, but they kept the males as, 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 as right? hostages. 
Um, at one point, um, they were going to cut off his beard, his long rabbinic beard, and they were going to cut off, cut off the beard. And uh, some say it was a nace. The commander said, no, he's a holy man. You leave him alone. They didn't cut off his beard, and they released him in time for Rosh Hashanah. Baruch Hashem. That's an interesting question. I heard it was just him, but I, I, I don't have, I, I, you'd have to check this, the original story out. I, I can't vouch for that. Um, he founded a yeshiva named after Sefer and Harnof, still exists today. The Pachad Yitzchak is there. Um, you have uh, the Mesif Sachai in Berlin would be led by other luminaries, including Rabbi Victor Miller, who's one of our great sources in all of history. We've been talking about him throughout this class. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Schechter, another major name in American uh, Torah. Um, now, we, we learned at the beginning of the, at the late 19th century, a great rub from Europe went over and was America's first chief rabbi and also America's last chief rabbi. Some feel killed by the position. America's not a place that's conducive, conducive to having a rabbi, let alone a chief rabbi. Not a fairly anti-authoritarian place that America is. I tell you, uh, right? It, it, it's not an easy place to, to exert control. I, I mean, I, I'm so Eretz Israel influenced here that I remember, and, and I, you know, I tend to be outspoken and so on. I remember coming back through, I went, I've gotten lecture tours over the years, and I think this was in the late 90s. I was invited by uh, a local shul, uh, not far from where my parents live in, in California, to come and speak to the Balabat team, and it was a modern Orthodox shul, and I spoke. <laughs> And the rabbi afterwards said, wow, you really laid into them. And I remember thinking, it was not even my starkest sheer. You haven't heard anything except what I say. And I realized in America, they're not used to doing this. They've got to soft pedal it. You've got you to be really careful. They're weak, weak, thick, thin skin. That's, that's, the, that's the metaphor, cliche I'm looking for. Right? Not, not so easy to put it across. And rabbis pay with their jobs. I mean, I was just a guest rabbi speaking. I hope I didn't get the real rabbi in trouble for inviting me. Uh, but you know, the board of directors often are the ones who determine what's what. Um, in this atmosphere, where it's extremely difficult for anybody to be a certified rabbi, there would be certain people who emerged. Dolim emerged, and argue, arguably the Gadol Ador of the 20th century, Rav Moshe Feinstein most certainly did. Uh, about Rav Moshe too, it's said that he saved American Jewry. Again, a Kaddish Baruch who did that for Rav Moshe, like Rav Aaron Cutler, plays a central role. Um, he's often he's known by his wonderful collection of tshuvas, the Igros Moshe, his dates. 1895 to 1986. He was born near Minsk in Uzda, a little village. Moved to the United States in 1936. 36, Baruch Hashem, just in time. Settled in the Lower East Side. And he became the Rosh Hashiva in the Masif City, Ferris Yerushalayim in the Lower East Side. Um, I remember the uh, I remember being in Raparnas this year. Raparnas, formerly of YU, later of Landers College, um, who said, for him, the Lower East Side was Rav Moshe Feinstein. And I remember this image, it's a, such a, so articulate, how, and so eloquent the way Rav Parnas phrased it. He, he, I know he was darshaning on Parshish Vayetze, Vayetze Yaakov, and it says, Rashi brings the Chazal, that when Yetze, when, when a tzaddik leaves a city, then everything leaves the city. Yatsa hodo, yatsa, oh, what's the exact lashon, I remember. The beauty, the grace, the, the, the refinement, all goes out of the city when the, when the tzaddik leaves. And Raparnas remembered, whenever he commuted, he lived in Brooklyn and commuted to Washington Heights, having to pass the Lower East Side every day. Every time he looked from the highway to the Lower East Side, he saw Rav Moshe. 
I don't know if you have that experience before, but the, the, the thing that stands out to you about a place, I mean, I guess a florist goes to a city and he sees the flowers. So a Parnas drove by the Lori side and he saw Rav Moshe's image. That's what colored the place. And when Rav Moshe was Nifter in 1986, he said it, it was painful for him to look at the Lower East Side. It lost its, its glow, as it were. So he was in the Lower East Side, but he was really all over America. He was a tremendous force. He was the chairman of the Moetzes Gedolei Taira. He was also a leader of the Chinuch Atzmai in Eretz Yisrael. See, I mean, we, at this point, you know, with the, with the modern technology used for the betterment of Torah, now the Gedolim can be everywhere. Now with, with modern communications and relatively easier travel, they can get over to Eretz Yisrael and fight the fight, whatever the cause was. Um, he was revered by Gedolim even before he had emerged as being the Gadol Hador, even when many of them were older than him. Uh, early on, Rav Moshe was recognized as, as an outstanding Torah personality. He was asked some of the hardest shilas of the modern age, and his psak halacha influences strongly till today. Um, I mean, really, arguably, there hasn't been a figure like Rav Moshe Feinstein since in, in the last few decades. Um, some of his land, landmark um, tshuvas include the whole field of medical ethics, not just ethics, but medical psak, because medicine would be revolutionized in the modern era, and you needed a posik to understand medicine and how it applied to halacha. Um, he has instrumental, famous piski halacha we've discussed before. He matiered stam chalov, uh, what's the, the non-Jewish milk, O-U-D, if you will, uh, products when you cannot find Chal of Yisrael. Of course, Rav Moshe himself had Chal of Yisrael and insisted that if you could find it, even if it was more expensive, of course, that's the way to go. That's the halacha. But his famous uh, leniency made it possible for Orthodox Jews to consider themselves Orthodox and not in violation of halacha when they lived far and wide across America. And, and many of his Piske Halacha were very much with this in mind. How can people in the Golden Medina, that's many ways antithetical to Torah observance, how could they sustain a, a reasonable Torah lifestyle? So the, the, the Kula here reflected, reflected that sensitivity. He was, uh, we've talked about this when we gave Shira on Reform and Conservative, he prohibited under most circumstances entering such a synagogue and has many of the, piece, the, 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 the landmark Piske Halacha with regards to how to relate to the, um, to the non-religious movements. Uh, he was not. He would not compromise. There was a whole episode that I described before, where he uh, he sought the Rav Soloveitchik from YU uh, against the whole notion of ecumenicalism in the 1960s, when many of the modern Orthodox rabbis were participating in these interfaith dialogues. Ramosha said, "Don't you realize that these Christian preachers are using you to get at your constituents? They're giving they're, by sitting on a panel with them. You, the Orthodox rabbi, are conferring a certain legitimacy on the Catholic priest, on the or the evangelical Protestant, whoever, whoever, whoever's sitting there, and um, and and it's part of their plan to they proselytize, they try to influence Jews. You cannot participate." Ramosha argued vehemently. Um, Rav Soloveitchik didn't accept it. His cousin, his cousin, Rosolovechik, didn't accept it. Um, I never saw a direct refutation of Rav Moshe. I, his assertion was simply that one could, within limitations, uh, be part of the modern society and communicate with, with people, as, as for sake of setting the record straight about Torah. Every society requires its own unique psaq. You can't say, well, the Rambam would have pasked in modern America since the Rambam didn't live in modern America. And he was, not, he was not exposed to the dynamics of life, the fraught religious life in modern America. You need a living, breathing posik. I'll tell you that, and Rav Moshe was that posik. 
who said, in this case, no, no. Uh, he said about um, rabbis, rabbis, notice the full pronunciation, reform and conservative, who um, he puzzled their weddings uh, to prevent mumzerus. Controversially, not everybody accepted his pesach. Um, he wrote a landmark tshuva prohibiting men and women from shaking hands. He wrote the tshuva against smoking marijuana, by extension any other recreational drug, um, and many others. Um, his approach often reflected the notion, get this idea, it's a major idea, kocha dehetera adifa. You ever heard the expression before? Kocha dehetera adifa, the power of leniency is actually preferable. What's the idea? The idea is, um, he describes this as, in his introduction too, people think that the more religious you get, the more machmir you get. You ever have that notion before? Okay. Right, it's the same idea. Rav Moshe writes this in the introduction to his to Igor Moshe. He says the opposite is true. Where, where does the misconception come from? It comes from the fact that most Jews are so pathetically ignorant about Torah and halacha in general that what they perceive as a chumrah is simply halacha. So when you see somebody practicing halacha correctly, they say, oh, you're so machmir. I remember one of my tour guide students uh, saying about going into church, he says, well, I'm not machmir about it, I go into church. It's not a chumrah, it's, a, it's an iser. There's a difference between the two. Uh, it's not a chumrah to avoid shaking women's hands, it's simply that's the halacha and, ma- and many other areas. Um, so, and he was machmir there, because it's not, it's, not it's not a chumrah, it's simply a prohibition. But where, he, he said, so when you start to learn the halachas, you know, now, I would imagine, for most of you, most people in Dera, they're coming to Eretz Yisrael, they're coming to Yeshiva, and for the first time learning basic halacha correctly. So naturally, families back home and old friends are looking at you like, oh, wow, look, Mr. Machmir, when in fact all you're doing is, for the first time in your life, maybe practicing halacha properly, right? What he says, when you get really big in Torah, you start realizing you don't have to be machmir on everything. You know, at this level of learning, for most of us, we are forced de facto to become machmir because not knowing differently, most of us really don't know the intricacies of the law. We have to side, you know, with the air on the side of caution and be strict. He said, but when you rise in the ranks, you realize I don't have to do that. I don't have to do this. I can be make hill here. This is not necessary. And the koch that there, Adifa, sometimes when you're really big, you know you're lenient in this area because ultimately you're more machmir on Klal Yisrael's survival, which is what he was doing in the Chal of Yisrael uh, sugya and in many other sugyas as well. Um, he, for example, he said he, um, he has certain coolest, for example, ten tvachim mechitzos, a very minimal level mechitza that many people hold by and say that's the minimal level. Ten, that's modern orthodox, if they do. Some of the modern orthodox don't, don't even do this much. But those who are careful do at least ten tefachim, which is not very high. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's in order so that the shul won't become conservative. The mechitza in American Jewish life would actually, and I do mean this as a pun, would become the dividing line between conservative and orthodox. And and many right wing conservative went over to either orthodox or conversely, their 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 board of directors, their constituency, made them get rid of the mechitza. Or, or lower the mechitza to the point that it was no longer kosher, that literally defined what was the synagogue because the great area between the two was, was immense. Right-wing conservative is, is often much more religious than left-wing modern orthodox. And it's very murky in the, in the, in the uh, great gray waters exist between the two. So Rav Moshe's tshuva was meant to give literally the dividing line so you know this is a minimally kosher place. I can dive in here. Because if you're not in such a place, you can't dive in there. You can't step foot inside, certainly while they're diving in, yeah. Topic, but what about mechitza where it's just, it's just another, it's 
then that's okay that's too. Mechitza, I have a, I have my one of my files on Mechitza. I don't think I've recorded it yet. I really should give that share so I should I can record it and post it. Um, I really should do the same with my Breslov. I have a new Breslov piece that I have to put up. But the Mechitzas um, um, are a modern phenomenon because in the old world there was no feminism, and when women came to shul, anyway, there was a balcony, and it was just not an issue. It's an issue because of modernity. So then, okay, so Halacha has to respond to that. Okay, you can bring women into shul, they're going to daven in a mainstream kind of way. Okay, well, then there has to be a standard. Uh, by the way, there's no requirement, if the place is not a shul, if you're having a makeshift place for davening, let's say, as we do on Tulim, which is not as ideal, it's best to daven in a shul, but if you can't, um, you don't need a mechitza, then indeed women can kind of stand in the background if there are women present. Uh, but if you have a shul, you have to have a minimal chitza. The Sabah Rebbe begged to differ. He has a famous shita that you can't see the woman. Uh, you know, they're actually, his shita is the women are often Siberian. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but they, but they, but it's, it's much more rigorous. But okay, Rav Moshe, people can, people often rely on Rav Moshe. Go ahead. To your question from the Yeah. Uh, woman, what's the source of, uh, that you said that in a makeshift shul? Uh, or like a makeshift? Uh, Mechitza is only a requirement in a shul. Is, is that, uh, if it's not a shul, mechitz is a modern topic. You can trace it back to the 19th century earliest. Wait, but do you have a source? Or? Sure. Yeah. So sure. I, I can ask you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send. I'll but, send you. I'll send you some and of the then, sources. Uh, on. Second, what about last some of the open orthodox. Right, right, right. I mean, the nickname, there's, a, there's a famous shul in the Upper West Side called the Lincoln Square that has a cute nickname, the Wink and Stare Shul. <laughs> you ever heard such a thing before? Okay. Uh, <laughs> it kind of tells you everything, doesn't it? Um, you're, the point of the machitza, listen, ironically, what is the function of machitza? It's based in the Gemara and Brachos and Chavdalet and Aleph that a man saying Kriyashma, learning Torah, saying Brachos in general, can't be exposed to erva. What's erva? That's the same Gemara that defines what's erva. Shok be'isha erva. Tevach be'isha erva. Kol be'isha erva. All of these requirements of erva. Women who are dressed, therefore, modestly, a man theoretically could say Shema in her presence. Oh, we need a machitza. Okay, with a machitza. But Me'ikar Adin, really, if you see such a woman, and she's very modest, as long as in your part there's no derechiba, and you're not staring at her. If you're staring at her, even if she's perfectly, you know, immaculately dressed, it's near standards, but she's attracted to you nonetheless, then the lashon of the machaber is even her little pinky's a problem. But still, you hear the issue. The issue is much less serious when the women are much more careful in halacha. Ironically, the places that have the weakest machitzas, the women, of course, not coincidentally, tend to be the most negligent in the areas of sneers. So there, all the more so, you can't rely if you're seeing the glass, if it's going to set your Yitzhahara on fire. That's the greatest problem. So there's the same thing with the, the next floor up, where I can see all the women. Not if the women are immodestly clad and you're exposed to them during brachos, shkriyashma, tzvila, you can't, you can't be there. You'd have to turn around. It's a problem. You don't have to look up. But if they're easily in your purview, uh, maybe position yourself in front of the shul, you'd have to get away from it. Um, maybe do two steps to get away from it, really. The, um, the, all of this was, of course, to minimize the challenges for the dwindling ranks of Orthodox Jews in America. Still, in the 1940s and 50s, when Rav Moshe's really arising, many of his, his early tshuvas emerged from, from this period. Uh, in America, Orthodoxy did not seem to have a, a particularly uh, strong future in America. And so, and so his, his purpose was to save, save the uh, observance in America. Um, 
He personally, however, was known to be machmir on himself, as we see with many of the gedolim. He was lenient on others and stringent on himself. Were we just talking about exactly that? We know we were just talking about Rosh Hashanah Orbach getting off the bus and so on. Our, generally in halacha, we try to be lenient with others and not impose ourselves on them. He, he um, for example, was uh, one basic halacha. You're not supposed to walk in front of anybody who's in the middle of the Shemona And in one instance, Rav Moshe was expected to, to be present at a convention of the Gudis Yisrael. And there was, I guess they had, uh, uh, da- they had mincha beforehand, and somebody was davening and extending tefillah. After mincha was over, he was still davening. And the only way to the, was to enter by walking in front of him. Rav Moshe refused, and he waited an, over an hour before the man finished his Shmona And he was late for the convention because of that, but he understood that was the halacha. Um, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong walked in the mood in 1969, um, and many speculated about extra. That was the early specula- uh, earliest known speculation in halacha about extraterrestrial life. I mean, people, it hadn't come up so much in the post. So they asked Rav Moshe, what do you think about extraterrestrial life? And he said very firmly that they'd find nothing. He was confident. There was nothing out there. Why? He said, because there's not even a hint of it in anywhere in Chazal. Rav Moshe said, now listen to the inter- interesting import of Rav Moshe saying this. Somebody like Rav Moshe could say that. And only somebody like Moshe could say that because his knowledge of everything in halacha was so exhaustive that you could say, I've never seen even a remez, even an allusion, even a havamina to anything that could indicate extraterrestrial life. Almost nobody else could say such a thing. So, so that's what he said. That was Rav Moshe's opinion on the subject. So, so when books like uh, a lot of like curious things now, like say, oh, well, there could be like then they Rav Moshe said otherwise. Rav Moshe said his son-in-law. They asked his Rav Moshe's son-in-law, controversial figure. Uh, his son-in-law was asked in the early two thousands when they sent back the. I, I quoted this before. When they sent back the preliminary pictures from Mars, indicating maybe there was water, whatever. Where there's water, there's often life. Could there be life on other planets? So they interviewed a bunch of you know, religious figures, Christian, Muslim, otherwise. So they came to the Orthodox rabbi, they asked him, um, uh, Moshe Tendler, they asked him, um, is it, what do you think about the prospect of, of life on other planets? And his, rea- his reaction was, what, intelligent life outside the greater New York area? <laughs> That's a really great reaction. Anybody know tri-state Jews? Come on, you gotta preach, you gotta love that, no? no? There's no intelligent life outside of the tri-state area, yes. Fine. You, uh, fair enough. You guys are getting sidetracked on the very interesting question of extraterrestrial life. I, my purpose of bringing this is really to show that only Rav Moshe with his exhausted knowledge can make such a statement. That to me is the more impressive part of this whole story. Um, he finished the Shulchan Aruch over 700 times. He finished Shas over uh, 202 times. He completed Maseches Shabbos every Shabbos. That was his Shabbos Onig. And some of you have cake. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, no. You probably also have cake. How did it, so how did this person live? This person? person? You call him this person? He, he, he. He? 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 Moshe Feinstein, who lived, as we recited at the beginning of this class, 1895 to 1986. Okay, he had a reason to too, but even so. Okay, this is... Um, Yep, congratulations. Admittedly, he was unusual. Rav Moshe was known, for example, to be able to glance at a skyscraper and say, oh, 72 stories. What? 
it's at least one question. Torah makes you smarter, as the Brisa indicates in the sixth paragraph of Pirkei Avos. Yeah. 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 Um, famous story, I tell this all the time, it's really great for Musser. Um, a driver drove him especially to an event, and um, the driver got out of Moshe Feinstein, he opened the door for Rav Moshe, and um, when Rav Mo- as Rav Moshe was getting out, he was an elderly man, the driver closed the door on Rav Moshe's finger. Has anybody ever had a door, yes. car door slammed on yes. their finger? Okay, okay. Um, watch, watch me, watch me. Rav Moshe's response was this. Poker face, nothing. He simply cradled his hand out of view of the driver. The driver got back in the car and drove off. People were wa- never knew. The driver never knew what he had done. The people around gathered and said, "Ha! Ah! <laughs> Rav Moshe, what?" They, 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 they couldn't believe what they had just witnessed. That he had no reaction to it, and they asked him, "Aren't you in pain?" He said, "Oh, immense pain right now." He said, "But I didn't want to. I didn't want the driver to think that I was kafui tova, that I didn't have gratitude for driving me. He maybe he would have hurt his feelings." Rav Moshe was this, uh, as Rav Schechter called him. This is Rav Schechter's in, inimitable word. He says, "A sweetie pie." Uh, he went. I mean, so many stories of Rav Moshe. I'll give you another one that's not in my notes. He. Um, uh, in, in the, in the Massif of Tiferes Israel, and, 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 um, a student, they had apparently had a spiral staircase, and a student, like any good Torah student, loved, you know the story, loved going down, spinning down that spiral staircase rail. And one time, he had a great time, he was going down the spiral staircase rail, and he careens right into the Rosh Hashiva and knocks him over. <laughs> Can you imagine if you're that student? You just knocked over the gutter of the door, and the student was so dumbfounded he couldn't speak afterwards. He was so embarrassed, and immediately Rav Moshe got up and he went over and he said, "Would you be me? I am so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. And he was absolutely genuine. It was not an affectation. He was absolutely sincere. He said, "I don't know what came over me. I should know that the boys. It's totally reasonable. The boys love to play here. What, what business do I have walking near here where I can set you up for this kind of situation? Please be me. And the students was so stunned. He said this. He couldn't say anything. So a few days went by, and every time Rav Moshe saw the student, he said, please be me." And the student was so flustered and down, and, and, and didn't know what to say. And finally the student said, Rebbe, I mochel you. And that was the end of the story. Yeah. There was a story Rebbe Bruce just told us yesterday uh, about uh, somebody who studies handwriting. Yeah. And, uh, and so everybody, like, everybody was saying that it's like a fake uh, study. Yeah. And to, to disprove them, it was a religious man who, was, who studied handwriting. Yeah. So, so they took writing from uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Yeah. And they gave it to him. Uh-huh. And he looks at it and says, this this man has has a lot of anger. He struggles with anger. Oh, wow. And they say, oh, see, I knew that. I know that you're a fraud because this is Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the nicest human being, the sweetest person. Right. And they, they told the story to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Wow. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said, he's absolutely right. That's my largest thing. But I've struggled with it and I fought it. Which is what? Uh, anger, 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 and, anger. <laughs> and I fought with it my whole life. But now, right? People are not naturally sweet. That's something that you have to work on. Sophisticated, immense human beings. 
eventually might have the chance of becoming sweet one day. Like Rav Moshe. He said he was absolutely Absolutely true. You remember Rav Lazarus Shlita talking about his kever and harmonuchos. He told the story when he was Zoha with his Rebetzin to go and sit with Rav Moshe. He said when you sat with Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe had the world on his mind. His phone didn't stop ringing. And when you went and you went for a personal visit, he came over, he sat with them. You got the impression that he had nothing else in his life other than you. He talked with them. He was loving and patient and whatever they needed, they, he was there for them. Quite unique. Um, when he was buried in 1986 in Har Menuchos, his Levaya was considered the largest Levaya since Rebbe Yehuda Nasi's Levaya in the end of the Mishnah period. Um, there were an estimated 250,000 people in attendance. It was bested indeed by, by later on, Rabbi Solomon Zaman Orbach, Rabbi Vadi Yosef, certainly. Uh, we're, not, we're not into playing numbers competition games anyway, but the, all these funerals of these illustrious great Rabbonim certainly make a point. Um, Rabbi Yosef Dovber Soloveitchik was Rosh Hashiva of Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan Theological Seminary from 1941 when he was a young man. 1941, he was really, he was, he was 38 years old uh, until 1986 when he had Alzheimer's. He, he, he died in 1993, but um, he, he, he had Alzheimer's, so he was, un, he was unable to continue. Uh, and he's considered, till today, the figurehead of modern orthodoxy in America. Uh, he was the embodiment of this concept of Torah Mata that we discussed um, earlier in the class. He wrote his PhD thesis, get this, on, I'm sure you all know this topic cold, but let's say you don't, he wrote his PhD on epistemology and metaphysics of German philosophy. I love that. Uh, he used, according to his, many of his great students, he used his secular knowledge not as an end in itself, but merely as a means of transmitting Torah to his uh, secular Americans, assimilating Americans, much like Rav Sajigon had done uh, over a millennium earlier, like the Rambam had done, like Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch would do, would take the language and the culture that people knew as a way of reaching out. So if you read his books, you see immensely uh, intellectual and sophisticated language that knows the university mindset that most modern Americans, most modern Western people have, and it was able to convey deep Torah concepts to that mindset in a unique way. What, what, language, did he, what language did he write? English. Predominantly English. Reminds me of Brother Gottlieb, actually. Gives, uh, his, also, also, correct, and it's a kid Hashem. Because, you know, a parent just said, I thought your Rebbe's never went to college, they were like ignorant and backwards. Not that they need to go to college. A person could learn Torah and all of his life. But if a Rebbe did go to college to use that, potentially somebody asked me on the tool yesterday, do I need to know all this secular stuff? And it depends what you're using it for. But potentially it could come in handy. Dama Lahashi, you should know how to be able to speak to an Apokoros, to people from the outside. Rav Soloveitchik was, a, was, a, was one of the great figures who could do that. Uh, many of the many of the shirim are on tape. He, he, uh, his mastery of the English language was evident, even though he was heavily accented. But uh, I, I defy you to speak better English than Rav Soloveitchik. Um, he was the grandson of Rav Chaim Brisker, the nephew of the Brisker Rav. Um, they famously didn't see eye to eye. A lot of, lot of um, um, uh, argument, all on the, idea, on the level of ideas between them. He um, was a cousin of Rav Moshe Feinstein. They were, he was a descendant. They were descendants of the Tosos Yontif, the Shla, the Marshal, uh, and Rashi. That's strong pedigree. One of his books is called Halachic Man, 
he focuses in the book on this worldly study and practice of halacha. The halachic man is somebody who takes the sublime notions of Torah and lives in this world. This idea that I quoted when I, I referred to Rav Parnas' Hespeda um, of Moshe, he said, he said uh, you know, different people come to a city and they see different things. Again, a florist sees the flowers, um, I don't know, uh, a garbage collector sees the garbage strewn in the streets. Um, so a halachic man is this figure that Rav Soloveitchik describes. He says he comes, he sees a river and immediately thinks, hmm, Mem saw, is it a kosher mikvah or not? Everything, you know, the leaves on the tree, are they, you know, everything has potential halachic significance um, from, from, his, from his world view. Yes? You can certainly see this, not just in Rabbi Akiva's ideas, but men, yeah, what do you think of Rabbi Akiva? Oh, he was able to integrate it in the here and now. Beautiful. Nice illustration. I think you could use that as a nice raya for this. But what he's saying is that certainly the Torah takes you to sublime, but insofar as you're alive in the physical form as we are, you can and must be able to see everything in halacha terminology. There's not a thing in this world that doesn't have some halacha. I, I, I think that uh, some of my um, talented teach the teachers of my sons in, in um, Cheder over the years have used this idea very effectively. They'll, they, as they, I, I remember going to like a, like a class play, but the Cheder's equivalent of a class play is the boys do like Torah test type things and they perform Torah skits and things like that. And one of the things that they did very creatively is the Rebbe, without preparing the boys in advance, threw out a random concept in the physical world, and the boys had to brainstorm, and they were very young, they had to brainstorm psukim, halachos, that had something to do with that idea. You name it, and the boys had something to associate in Torah and halacha with it. And that's, we can do the same, we should. Or we should at least build ourselves, work on that idea. That's halachic man, as Rav Soloveitchik described him. Um, he taught halacha as the existential basis for spiritual living. You cannot be a spiritual being unless you're, not, unless you're performing in the here and now, everything in halacha. Um, <clears throat> in general, not just this issue of the interfaith dialogue that he did not sign on when Rav Moshe asked him to. In general, he had controversial ideas. Toromada was criticized. Why um, you was controversial as, as, as some, of the, some of the areas that I've talked about. Um, the general approach was that he was seen as being overly conciliatory to secularism. Secularism. That was the argument. Was that Rambam's? Did people say it was his philosophy? I don't think so. I think people try to assert that. I think it's unfair to build parallels because the time, the context was so different. You have to understand this in this context and that in that context. They're just not analogous. I oh, they're little parallels. But, um, but no, the controversy here was, you know, how far do you accommodate to the overwhelming secular influence? And Rav Soloveitchik stood alone, not unlike, I mean, he's much younger, but not unlike Rav Cook, who also stood alone in Eretz Yisrael against the Gedolim. And when you're standing, usually Gedolim, they can argue with one another, but there's usually a camaraderie. Usually there's a chevra, there's the, the Gedolim Hador, they often sign together on letters, and so on. When you're the only voice in a void, that says something already. That was the situation with Russell Levechik. He was formerly a member of Agudis Israel, and he formally left. He broke away from the Agudis Israel, and he became the, 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 the icon of the modern Orthodox world. Uh, again, he was notably criticized by his uncle, the Brit- Briskarab, but not just. Um, many of the Gedolim 
moved away from him. In yeshiva circles, often I wince at this. One hears people speaking about him in denigrating ways. They call him JB, which is a way of kind of like indicating that he was more JB than Rav Yosef Dolber Soloveitchik. Try to speak about it in modern terms. Um, that's usually reflecting their ignorance. Uh, the Rav Soloveitchik's defenders, of whom there are many great Torah personalities who knew the Rav very well, as he was referred to as the Rav, knew that everything about him was Torah, Mesiris Nefesh, Torah, and Mitzvos, uh, and he did what he thought was correct. Whether they agree with him or not, um, that you can't, you can't um, fault him for his sincerity, for his L'shem Shemayim, and, and his immense Torah, that taught, taught on the highest level, uh, understood by few. Um, Rav Soloveitchik was one of these figures, I'll end, I'll end with this, who at his Levaya, um, and then afterwards, people wrote articles about him, and you, you, you just, you thought they were talking about a different person. Because he represented a constituency that was so broad, so wide, modern orthodoxy is so uh, across the spectrum, that you often don't think you're, you're, they're referring to the same person. Often because this person saw in him what they chose to see in them, their ideas. They said, oh, Rav Soloveitchik's like me. In Boston, they said that, where, where, Boston, where Soloveitchik lived for a period, right, in Boston, he approved of Maimonides being, um, being co-ed because back in Boston in the day, it was either co-ed Jewish education or nothing. And so, without, a, without an alternative, okay, that's what you do. Even Rav Soloveitchik would have agreed, ideally, you separate the boys and the girls if you have the means, you have the ability. Uh, but till today, they'll say, oh no, we keep it co-ed like Rav Soloveitchik wanted. Because people read into him what they, what they wanted based on their own relative agendas. So he, he, he left that certain ambiguity in his wake. Uh, and people often refer to the Rav said, and they don't often know what they're talking about. And uh, there, are few, there are few senior students by Rav Soloveitchik who are defenders, and there's arguments still today about what he indeed meant and said about different, different things. Part of the confusion in modern orthodoxy till today. Um, but in terms of the figure himself, he certainly was uh, in many ways uh, true to his, true to his uh, family and, and, and to the Torah of the, the, the Petty, uh, what am I looking, the heritage uh, of his family and tried to, tried to um, sustain it in a very un unhospitable environment of America. I have one more gadol that I'm not going to introduce now. We'll, we'll get to him next week. I, I'm not teaching. I, there's going to be somebody. Uh, there'll be another class tomorrow instead. Um, but next Sunday, we'll talk about Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. And then we're going to get back to Eretz Yisrael in the 1950s and the immense struggles uh, involved in building a new country.